Well, Happy New Year. If we, if we don't know each other, my name is Nate, and I'd love to meet you at some point. Um, today, we're uh, doing something that we're calling Vision Sunday. And the goal today is just to talk about where we believe that the Lord is leading us as a church and uh, how you can be a part of it. And so if this is one of your first times here, this is a great Sunday to be here because you're going to get to find out uh, right away uh, what we're hoping to accomplish here together. And if you've been here for a long, long time, uh, I hope it's also helpful for you to know um, what it is that we're trying to do together as we partner together. Um, have you ever felt that following Jesus was actually confusing and difficult? As you try to process the things in your life, being a follower of Jesus doesn't always make it easier. You've had to wrestle with personal challenges, financial challenges, relational challenges. You've had to process grief. And being a follower of Jesus does provide a lot of hope and perspective in times like that, but it doesn't make everything crystal clear. It doesn't make everything perfectly obvious. Following Jesus is, is still confusing. And have you felt that this is maybe even more true in today's world than it was previously? Have you felt that it's maybe even more confusing where we live than it might be in other parts of the world, other parts of the country? Um, recently, I saw an article um, it was a bit sarcastic, um, but it was referencing um, King County's guidelines for holiday decorations for King County employees. And basically the memo stated that you don't need to put up any kind of religious symbol. And it had a long list of religious symbols and all religions were included. You know, you, you can't have anything like that including your virtual workspace, which means anything that might be in your home uh, should not be visible on camera uh, because that could be offensive to people. And um, as I was reading the article, I just realized this, I don't work you know, as a King County employee. Um, I work at the church. And so that's something that people expect me to have a Bible and you know, some kind of Jesus reference in my office. But as I was reading this, this article, um, I, I was thinking about many of you. This is your, your normal work day. Having to navigate, okay, I'm a follower of Jesus, but am I allowed to say that? What are we supposed to do? How do we follow Jesus in, in an environment like that? And that's a question that we're going to have to wrestle with. This is a question that we are already wrestling with. This is a confusion that we are already having to work through. There are many families in our church who are having to figure out what does it look like to love family members who have come out or have transitioned? What does it look like to do that? There are are people in our church who have same-sex attraction and who have gender dysphoria, and they have to ask the question, what do I do with these feelings? And 
what does this mean about my relationship with God? And what does this mean about my relationship with the church? These are real questions that people are asking. Real questions that people are asking are, what should we do about schooling? Are we ready to send our kids into an environment in which they'll be asked to choose a pronoun? Are we ready to do that? Families are divided over these issues and many other issues. And on top of that, the church throughout time and throughout our nation's history has a reputation of, at times, hypocrisy and hate as we attempt to answer these questions. This church, this preacher, has to wrestle with these questions, knowing at times that I will be a hypocrite. If you are going to follow Jesus in today's culture, you know it's going to be challenging. Living in a post-Christian culture is disorienting, it's confusing, and consequently, people are confused about what's right and wrong, We're confused about how to interpret the Bible and apply it to everyday life. We're afraid of sharing our faith because of negative repercussions that it may have in our relationships or at work or with family. And we feel unprepared to defend our faith in such a hostile environment. So what should we do? How should we respond in this cultural moment? Why are we here? I believe that God in his providence has put us here for such a time as this, and we are uniquely positioned to help people living in a post-Christian culture navigate the complexities of life with biblical wisdom and positively influence their neighbors. I believe we're here to do that. And that is what I believe that the Lord is calling us to pursue. In the language of the New Testament, here's what I believe our vision is as a church living in a hostile environment. This is not necessarily a new vision statement that will be posted everywhere. This is just my attempt to summarize what I think the New Testament is saying about how to live faithfully in such a time as this. And so here is our vision. Our vision is to cultivate a community of wise and winsome exiles. That's our vision. We want to cultivate a community here of wise and winsome exiles. What do I mean by that? That's what I want to talk about today. 
We are not the first Christians. We are not the first followers of Jesus, and we are not the first church who has ever had to wonder, what do we do? How do we live faithfully? How do we follow Jesus in a culture that doesn't care to follow Jesus? And one letter in the New Testament in particular that is useful for thinking about this is the letter that we call 1 Peter. If you have a Bible today, 1 Peter is where we're going to be. And we're not uh, just looking at one little section of 1 Peter. Uh, what we're going to try to do is get an overview of the whole book today. And so um, if you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Peter. If you don't, there's hopefully one in the seats there that you can flip to. This is on page 1075 um, in that Bible we think we found out this morning that there are some Bibles that are different than the ones that we've been putting the number up there. And so if that's, if you've opened one of those before and been like, this is not right, I'm really sorry. Uh, um, but uh, here's the backstory to first Peter. Um, it was becoming more and more normal for followers of Jesus to be criticized, mocked and discriminated against throughout the Roman empire. Many conservative scholars believe that 1 Peter was actually written before any major persecution, in particular before Nero's persecution. And so this book is not written in the context of outright persecution. It's written in the context of soft persecution, of being discriminated against, of being mocked, of being made fun of, of being marginalized. And it was becoming apparently increasingly normal throughout the whole Roman Empire, 1 Corinthians 5, or 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Peter uh, 5, 9 says, resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. So what you're experiencing in modern day Turkey is the people who are reading this. What you're experiencing is being experienced by Christians throughout the whole world, referring to the Roman Empire. This marginalization, this discrimination, this feeling like you're an outsider, it's not unique to you. It's normal. And so these are followers of Jesus. These are Christians who are being discriminated because they refuse to participate in the religious life of the Romans. They're living by a different set of morals and values. They get together on Sundays to worship and to take the Lord's Supper, which is translated for Romans as eating a crucified man's flesh and drinking his blood. And so the Romans hear that every Sunday they get together and they worship a man who was crucified. That must mean that he's an enemy of the state. And then they drink his blood. What kind of sick New religion is this, is the Roman perspective. And so they're mocked. They're marginalized, they're made fun of. People were suspicious of them and critical of them. And so Peter, one of Jesus' best friends on the earth, one of his closest followers, writes to explain what it looks like to follow Jesus in a situation like this. And the very first thing that Peter does 
as he talks to Christians living in this context, the very first thing he does is give them a label, a metaphor to carry to help them understand themselves. Here's what he says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles. And there's our word. He says, here's how you should understand your identity as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian. You're in exile. He says this again in verse 17 of chapter 1. He says, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence, <coughs> excuse me, conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. Again in chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. He says, here's how you're supposed to understand yourself if you're a follower of Jesus on this earth. You're in exile. You're in exile. That is, this world is not your home. You belong to another home. Now think about the implications of this word exile. This is a heavy label to embrace. Let's not romanticize this. Like, oh, exiles, praise God. This, this is a, a heavy label to embrace. On the one hand, by using the word exile, Peter is telling us something about what we should expect to experience in the world. He's saying that being a Christian should automatically make you feel like an outsider to some degree in this world. Being a Christian should automatically make you feel like an outsider to some degree in this world. You should expect to be criticized. You should expect to be mocked. You should expect to be discriminated against. You should expect to suffer. That's what you should expect if you're a follower of Jesus. Suffering is not surprising. It's expected. That's maybe a paradigm shift that we need to make, that I need to make. Identifying with Jesus should cause you to expect to experience what Jesus himself experienced. What did Jesus experience? He was misunderstood. He was mocked. He was eventually put on trial. He was beaten. He was executed. Now, praise God that that's not the situation that we're in. But that is the situation of Christians all over the world. What Jesus experienced, we should expect, expect to experience. That's why we're followers of Jesus. We're following him. We're exiles. So on the one hand, the word exile is telling us about something we should expect to experience in the world. At the same time, by using the word exile, Peter is telling us something about what it means to be a Christian. Here's what he's saying. 
Becoming a Christian means that your very identity has changed. There's a new label that you wear now because your identity is different. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're no longer primarily a citizen of this earth. You're primarily a citizen of heaven. All of a sudden, something has happened to you that has so fundamentally changed your identity that you have become an outsider on this earth. Being a Christian is not just choosing to live by a new philosophy or a new set of values. It's taking on a whole new identity. What is this new identity? He begins to explain it, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Do you see that? What's the point? It means that being a Christian, you become a new person. A new birth has taken place. You are born again. You're a new creation. You have a new identity. He also goes on to say that this new birth makes you a new citizen. It connects you to a new nation. Look at chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But you, speaking to Christians, you are a chosen race. Well, wait a minute. Aren't there a bunch of different races that all choose to come together and follow Jesus? Aren't there a bunch of different ethnicities who, yes, Peter's saying, but when you become a Christian, there's a new birth that's taken place. You were born in this world as a particular ethnicity in this world. That's not erased when you become a Christian, but there's a whole new identity that you take on. You're part of a whole new race, a whole new nation. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's a new identity. It comes from a new birth. It makes you part of a new nation. And it gives you a new hope or a new future. I said the word new hope, hoping might resonate with a little Star Wars fan out there. (laughs) Look at chapter 1, verse 3 again. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse 4, and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Here's the new hope. He says, there's an inheritance for you. There's something to live for. There's something that you can expect to receive in the future. But where is it? It's not on this earth. It's kept in heaven for you. Therefore, verse 13, therefore, with your minds ready for action, Be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? The revelation of Jesus Christ means 
There's a day coming when Jesus will, you'll see him again. That's all that the word revealed means. You'll see him again because he's coming back to the earth. And when you see him, then you will receive this inheritance. So set your hope on that. So we're exiles. That means we've got a new birth. We belong to a new nation. We have this new hope that we're living with. And how does this happen? How does someone become an exile? How does someone take on this new identity? How does someone take on this new birth? How do they experience the new birth, become part of the new nation, make this new hope theirs? He says, this new identity has come about by believing the message about Jesus Christ. In, in verse three that we looked at, he says, because of his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus died and was raised and something about Jesus's death and resurrection makes it possible for you to be reborn. Then chapter one, verse 18 He says, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, verse 21, through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus and his death and resurrection is what makes it possible for you to have new birth, be part of this new nation and have this new hope. And the way that we receive what Jesus has done is by faith. Look at verse 23. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. What is it that brings about this new birth? What's the seed that must be received in order for a new birth to take place? The answer is the word of God. And then he tells us, verse 25, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And the word is the gospel. That is the message of Jesus's death and resurrection. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Here's what I'm trying to show you. It's the message of Jesus's death and resurrection and believing it that makes you a new person that makes you born again, that connects you to this new nation and gives you a new hope. It's holding on, receiving and believing the message of Jesus's death and resurrection that makes you an exile. Jesus, go to chapter two, verse 22. Look at what he says about Jesus here. This is beautiful. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, he says. Chapter three, verse 18, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. I quote that verse almost every sermon. Peter is saying, here is the bottom line message. Jesus died and he rose again for your sins. And this message is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It's the seed that can be planted in your soul to make you come alive. The Christian faith teaches that real satisfying life is not found through self-expression and self-performance, but through self-denial and Christ's performance. That's the message. Everyone is looking for something to make their lives matter. Everyone is looking for something to make you go to bed at night and feel like, okay, everything's going to be okay. And the world in all of its different ways is baiting us to trust in something of this world to be the thing that can make our souls feel significant and can make us have peace when we go to bed at night, that can make us have peace as we think about what the future will be. The world is baiting us in all kinds of ways. The message of Jesus is this. That all of the things of this world They will not save you from your greatest need, and that is your sins. The greatest need that you and I have is to be redeemed from our sins, to be forgiven from our sins. We don't just need some tips or some rituals or some practices or a nice vacation to feel better or to solve our issues. We need a whole new life. And that is what we're offered in Jesus. And this new identity means that we will feel like outsiders in this world because even talking about it, it's out of date. But this new identity also means that we will live in new ways in this world. We will do things differently. Look at 1 Peter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, 
lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. But they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. This new identity means that we live in new ways. We understand things differently. The way we understand marriage and family systems, our approach to our jobs, the way that we treat our cultural enemies, the way that we use our money and resources, they will be different from this world. So, what has Peter done? He's trying to help us see that you're a follower of Jesus. If that's true for you, if you've believed in his death and resurrection, if you've come to grips with your sin and you've trusted in Jesus, then your whole identity has changed. If you've trusted in Jesus, you've been born again. You belong to a new place now, a new nation now, and you have a new hope now. There's lots of good, but now you're in exile. Now you're in exile. And so don't be surprised when trials come. But that's not where he ends. He also, throughout this letter, explains that being in exile is not the end of the matter. It matters what kind of exile we are. And my summary of what he's saying and what the New Testament teaches is we want to be exiles that are wise and winsome. By wise, I mean we navigate the complexities of life with purpose and discernment. Paul says, act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. He says, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Wisdom is thinking carefully about how to live, guided by the truth of God's word. It's saying no to sin and yes to righteousness, and it's using critical, gracious discernment about gray areas. Peter says, chapter 2, verse 11, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, that is, among the world. Conduct yourselves honorably. That is, think carefully about what you ought to do. So we navigate life with wisdom. We're careful about what we do and winsome. By that, I mean, as we walk through life as exiles, we're marked by joy and love and respect. Chapter one, verse six. He says, you rejoice in this, or rejoice in this. That is, you've got a new birth, you've got a new hope, you've got an inheritance in heaven. Rejoice in that stuff, even though now, for a short time if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials. 
a winsome exile, a follower of Jesus is not someone who embraces the identity of exile and then walks around and is like, man, doesn't everything suck around here? And life is so hard and everything is terrible. And that doesn't mean that they're absent from being honest about the fact that, yeah, sometimes life is hard. But their overall demeanor is not or one of complaining and arguing. But they're marked by joy. They're also marked by love and respect. Chapter two, verse one. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, that is, hatred, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander, talking bad about people, bad-mouthing people, Get rid of all of that. Why? Because you're new now. He says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Look at chapter three, verses eight and nine. Chapter three, verses eight and nine. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since we were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. This is the same stuff Jesus teaches in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, you're in exile. People are gonna slander you, but you are not going to slander them. You're gonna put away slander and you're going to return their mockery with a blessing. And that's just a, but I hope that their life goes well. They're treating me poorly, but man. Chapter three, verse, uh, we'll start in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence or gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good, your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. So our vision the vision I think that Peter's laying out, the vision I think of the New Testament. Our vision is to cultivate a community. That's what the church is. The church is a community. To cultivate a community of wise and winsome exiles. We want to cultivate a community of wise and winsome exiles. So what does that look like? In order to do that, I think that we have to devote ourselves to five things. And we call these our core values. We've spent a long time as a leadership team wrestling with what are these things? What are true about us? What need to be true about us? And these core values are core convictions that guide what we do. These are like strategic anchors in the ground that keep us on course as we pursue this 
vision of being wise and winsome exiles. So here they are. First, word-centered ministry. Word-centered ministry. By this we mean that we want to make decisions and disciples with our Bibles open. We want to make decisions and disciples with our Bibles open. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. The word of God is what actually makes people come alive. And then look at chapter 2, verse 2. This is interesting. Like newborn infants, so we've got this new birth that happens through the word, and then like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. In other words, the word of God is what is needed for non-Christians and for Christians. The word of God is what is needed to become a Christian and to grow as a Christian. And what is the word of God summarized as in verse 25? It's summarized as the gospel that was proclaimed to you. So as a church, we want to help people know what the Bible is ultimately about. That's what one of the main things that we need to give our time to. And here's what I mean by that. Everybody knows, oh, our church believes in the Bible. But what's the Bible about? Are you prepared to answer that question? It's a book, right? If you were asked if there were any other book and they were like, what's it about? You could give a a premise. Do you know what the Bible is about? Recently, last week, I was... um, um, I went to this hospital room with um, two women who were grieving the loss of their father. And um, I go in, and because I'm a pastor, we start talking about, you know, life and different things. And they brought up the Bible. And they mentioned how um, it's, it's helpful, and they have... Um, one of them said they keep it next to their bed and every once in a while they'll open it and just kind of flip for some encouragement for the day and read something that just helps them get through their day. And I encourage that and that's great. You, the Bible is encouraging and it never returns void and it will not hurt you to read it. Um, and it, it, will, it will help you. But then I, I, I didn't do this because I... Um, it was a sensitive moment. Um, but what I wanted to, to ask was, but do you know what the Bible is about? Do you know like what it, as a whole, what it's about? And so I didn't do that. Instead, I just shared with her why I think that the Bible as a whole can actually give her hope in this moment. And I explained how, what the Bible is about is how God is working to bring hope for people who are dying. And I contextualize that a little bit to her situation because that's the situation that they're in. They're trying to figure out what's hope for people who die. But that's the story of the Bible. We could summarize the story of the Bible in a number of ways, but do you know the basic story of the Bible? Could you explain it? Do you know how to apply the Bible to the particular questions that people have? 
How should we think about marriage, parenting, money, sex, work, sports, leisure, politics? One time I was meeting with someone. I was a brand new youth pastor. And this guy asked me, where does the Bible teach that sex is reserved for marriage? Where does the Bible teach that sex is reserved for marriage? And I could not figure out what to say. I was like, well, there's not like a verse that says specifically premarital sex is a sin. Like that isn't written. So then we have to reason our way there. Are you prepared to do that? As a church, we want to cultivate a community of wise and winsome exiles. And part of that is helping people know their Bible. And that's something that we want to do. That's something we're committed to, word-centered ministry. And that looks like our worship gatherings. That's one of the reasons that rather than putting the verses on the screen, I want you to open your Bible when you're here because it may be the only time that someone opens their Bible. And I, I want for us to, to look for ourselves at the word and see it. We want to do this in kids' ministry with kids and students. We want to do this with adults. We want to help people know their Bible. We make decisions and disciples with our Bibles open. As leaders, we make decisions. We want to think through the kinds of things that we do in light of what the Bible says, and we want to make disciples with our Bibles open. And this is just significant because I've thought about so many times where supposedly discipleship was happening and nobody was talking about the Bible at all. And I'm just like, that doesn't work. It's the word of God that brings people to life, and it's the word of God that we need to be desiring so that we can grow up into our salvation. So getting together just to talk about something detached from the word, has, it's, it's short-sighted. So we want to be a word-centered ministry. Second is persistent prayer. Only God gives the growth. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert, be sober-minded for prayer. We want to know God. We don't just want answers for culture's questions. We want to know God. We want his presence. We want to go deeper with him. And that happens in one way through prayer. So this is personal. We want to go deeper in fellowship with Jesus. We want to be full of the Holy Spirit. And we want to see God do something that we cannot do. The reason that the reason that you pray for things is because you recognize your dependence that I cannot do something here. And I need God to do something. And we want to be a church that's dependent on God. Only God gives the growth. We can plant, some can water, but God ultimately gives the growth. So let's ask God to move. Number three, strategic anchor, core value. We call it gospel-shaped community. We say grace is the thing that brings us together and grace is the thing that keeps us together. By gospel-shaped community, we mean there's a lot of different kinds of people here. And we don't all agree on 
everything in the world, but we do agree on this, that Jesus Christ has died for sinners and Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and Jesus Christ will return again someday and we want to be found in him on that day. We are trusting him. We cannot solve our problem of sin on our own. We need God to solve it, and he has in his son Jesus. That is the thing that unites us together here. We are a gospel-shaped community, and that means that we also begin to love people like God has loved us. Grace brings us together. We don't get welcomed here because of how well put together we are or being the right ethnicity or the right social standing. We come together here because of Jesus. And grace is the thing that also keeps us together because if you've ever tried to get along with people who are different, you know that problems arise. And that's why we have to walk in grace. We have to walk in humility. We have to have patience with one another. We have to bear with one another in our weaknesses. We're a gospel-shaped community. That's who we want to be. So we commit to one another, we serve one another, we love one another. The fourth thing, we call it future generations. We want to pass down the ancient faith. We want to pass down the ancient faith. Listen. One of my deepest desires is that we would be a church where when kids of all ages come here, they immediately feel like this is a place, if they're two, they feel like this is a place where I could run around and I can jump and I can dance and sing and I could climb up here on the stage and jump off and church is awesome. I hope that, that kids feel that way here. I hope that the environment is like, man, I just want to run here. I hope that's how it feels. And we are committed to being a place that is safe for kids and a place that teaches kids the gospel. We want to pass down the ancient faith. We don't want to pass down the new faith. Ooh. We want to pass down the faith once <laughs> delivered to the saints. We want to pass down the ancient faith. And listen, if you are concerned about what's being taught in public schools, here's what you should do, in my opinion, is you should sign up to serve in kids or student ministry here, save the Facebook post, and sign up to actually invest in future generations. That's what we should do. Um, the, that's number four. Number five is a missionary heart. A missionary heart. By this, I mean that we love our neighbors and we spread the good news. If you talk to missionaries, and I'm excited in February, I'm going to get to talk to some and just hear from them about their experience in much harder places than the Pacific Northwest. And when you talk to missionaries, you do not hear about how much they hate their neighbors and how critical they are of all of these. Non they are looking for opportunities to be at peace so that they can have an opportunity for a door to be opened for the gospel. And that's how we have got to learn to live. We can learn from our brothers and sisters around the world in this regard. The church is not a bunker for us to get together and talk about the dangerous world out there. We are meant to love the world. So we want to love our neighbors and spread the good news. We want to practice hospitality. 
We want to invite people into our home. We want to do great community service. We want the city of Renton to be glad that we're here. We want to pick up trash. We want to do things like love our city, serve our city. We want to integrate our faith and work wisely. We want to actually do evangelism. We want to share the gospel. So, That's who we want to be, and these are the five things that we feel like we've got to give our attention to to keep us moving in that direction. So how will we get there? 2023 is a year of preparation. 2023 is a year of preparation. Um, It's a lot of, in my opinion, things that are like, do we really have to work on this? Um, But but it's still important stuff. because it helps, I think, get us ready for greater ministry opportunity in the future. So here are three goals that, um, that our leadership team have established for 2023 as the year of preparation. The first is we want to revamp our membership culture. We want to revamp our membership culture. By membership, we don't mean anything like hard or you know, exclusive like Costco or something. <laughs> By membership, we mean... We want to have a tool where we can honestly say, if you belong to this church, you will be cared for and you will be known. We want that to be true. We actually want to be able to know the people that are here and know how to help them when needs arise and know that if if you are connected here as a member, that we can get you connected into discipling relationships. We, we, we need a way of, in a church our size, of being able to uh, honestly say that. So membership is about us being able to keep our word in that way. And so um, we'll talk a lot more about this later in the year, but my hope is that in August of this year, Lord willing, that our whole church will retake our church membership class that we're launching um, in August, and it'll be, uh, we'll have a few um, easy opportunities um, for you to hopefully be able to do that, but my hope is that literally 100% participation is what I'm hoping for. It's not realistic, um, but, but that's what we're shooting for, um, and so that's coming in August. We got a long time to talk about that, but, but that's important, um, uh, so that's our first goal. The second is Um, to sync our ministry calendar and clarify the win. And here's what we mean. Um, A church our size is great at being busy and hosting events and doing lots of things. And that's all good. The problem is just because you're doing a lot of stuff doesn't mean you're actually doing the thing you should be doing. So um, we want to spend the year of 2023 evaluating what are the things that we are offering and Are they helping us get where we want to go? Are they helping us be a community of wise and winsome exiles? So we want to make sure that our calendar is uh, is doing the right things, and we want to sync our calendar so that we protect you and our staff from burnout. Um, We have a bad habit sometimes of it's like, this month's coming up and we've got six things we expect you to be at. There's only four weeks this uh, in, the, in the month, but we expect six times you're going to have, and it's like, that's the way that people get burned out. Um, 
And so we want to protect our leaders, we want to have a healthy staff culture in that regard, and we want to protect you, the people who show up to serve at all these different things that we do. So we want to sync our ministry calendar so that we uh, protect against those things, and we want to clarify the win. By this, I mean we want to look at every single ministry that we do and ask, what does success look like there? So beyond just, okay, the teachers showed up in kids' ministry. Great, okay, that's good. Um, beyond just, kids signed up for camp. Oh, good, okay, good. Like, but what are we hoping to accomplish in the kids' class? And what are we hoping to accomplish at camp? And how will we know if we succeeded? What are we hoping to accomplish on a Sunday morning? And how do we know if it was good? Oh, the spirit was moving today. Sometimes that just means you liked the music. Like, what are we, what are we hoping to accomplish? And how do we know if we do? We want to get intentional in that regard. And then here's our third goal um, of the year is, this one's the fun one, is to introduce uh, two new experiments. Um, and um, that's literally what I mean. Um, so <laughs> don't know what they're going to be yet, but um, we're going to try two new things this year, and it's going to be awesome. Okay. <laughs> so here's the question for you is will you partner with us? Will you partner with us? Unfortunately, cultivating this kind of community cannot be accomplished by a one-time decision. Call today and you'll receive, you know, it's not how this works. Um, instead, it's something spiritual that will take long obedience in the same direction. And so, will you partner with us? Partnering with us looks like three ideas here. It looks like building habits of worship and community and mission. Will you partner with us by committing to build habits of worship, community, and mission? By building habits of worship, I mean gathering with us on Sundays. I mean practicing spiritual disciplines at home. I mean reading the Bible with yourself or maybe with your spouse or your roommates or your family. I mean, committing to prayer and rest and generosity. Build habits of worship in your life. Build habits of community. That might look like joining a group or a study, participating in membership, either by becoming a member or coming to the members meeting. The next one is February 26th. February 26th, you could come to the members meeting. Uh, retake the membership class when we launch it in August. I would love for you to do that. It might look like serving on a team. Um, the connections team, a lot of people find, is a great place to start because you can kind of get your feet wet serving, get to know people, and then find other ways to serve if you would like. Um, you could serve on our worship team. We're constantly looking for new musicians and vocalists to join our team. You could serve one, one area where I would love to see us like double um, our, our volunteer team this year is our tech team. We have an incredible tech team. And uh, Stephen, our, our tech director, is an awesome guy. And I would love, some of you are, are just tech-minded, you think that way, and I would love for you to, to serve in that way and serve behind the scenes in helping produce 
Sundays, or maybe even helping produce memorial services, or helping produce student ministry gatherings that we have. Um, that's one area where I would love to see more people serve this year. You could serve in preschool ministry. You could serve with kids ministry, um, either in the role of teachers or helpers, or you can uh, reach out to Jenica and she would love to talk with you about that. You can find her contact info on our website. Um, you could serve with student ministry, middle school or high school. You could serve on a care team and offer counseling or um, come alongside people in times of need to support them by serving on the care team. You could serve in the communications team and help take pictures or video or make graphics or any number of things. So you could serve on a team. That's one way you could build a habit of community. Um, you could prayerfully consider nominees for our team of elders. Um, so coming up later this month, we're going to ask for nominations from the congregation for people to serve as an elder. What we're looking for um, on the elder team is people who um, love God, know their Bibles, and are good examples that people should follow. And so we're looking for men who fit those categories. And so if, if there's a man who comes to mind who... who um, you think, man, I wonder if he would be a good um, elder. Nominate him this month. Um, building habits of community, I mean, uh, take an active interest in people's lives and people's relationship with Christ. When you come on a Sunday morning, remember that it's not you and God, it's us and God. And so take an active interest in the people around you. And then build habits of mission. This looks like hospitality, bringing people over into your life and into your home. It looks like doing local kindness and community service. It looks like figuring out ways to evangelize. And it looks like being generous to advance the gospel. So those are just a few ideas. Again, there's not like a silver bullet. Like if you do this, this is the thing that we're trying to sell you on. It's like, no, if we're going to cultivate a community, it's going to be us building habits. And so will you partner with us? My hope is that we'll be a church where we see the lobby full of people laughing and sometimes crying and hugging because people are known here. My hope is that this room will be a place where we are expectant because the spirit of God is here. We don't need to invite him. He invites us and that we would come in with an expectation that we are here to meet with God and hear from him. My hope is that this would be a church where, where kids and students grow up to know that they are loved by godly adults and that their name is known by dozens of adults and that they learn the truths of scripture. My hope is that this is a place where we see international immigrants who have come to faith because somebody who worked with them at Amazon or Microsoft shared the gospel with them. My hope is that this is a place where people who have deconstructed and have felt hurt by the church would actually return to faith because of what they experience here. My hope is that it's normal for us to have people who don't yet believe who are with us and who are known 
by those of us who call ourselves Christians. I hope that dads and moms become the primary disciple makers in their home. That they don't farm out trying to help their kids follow Jesus to the church, but they actually become the primary ones who take ownership for it in their home. And that we as a church are able to assist them in that and help teach them how to do that. I hope that we can be a church that in 10 years has helped purchase properties for other churches in our city and for other churches around the world so that other local churches are benefiting from this local church. I hope that we can be a church that local leadership in Renton talks behind closed doors about how thankful they are that we are here. Will you partner with us? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. You have given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is undefiled and unfading. God, we praise you for that. God, we know that this new birth makes us exiles. We don't feel at home here. But God, would you help us to be wise as we live here? And would you help us to be winsome? It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen.